Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. A couple of weeks ago, we were in this uh, book in the early parts of of chapter 4. And we considered this uh, section that Paul had written to the Thessalonians, a small, young church struggling to know in a frenzy and wondering to know what they are to do now in the meantime between having become Christians and between Christ's first coming and His second coming. We don't know exactly all that was happening at Thessalonica, but you can imagine uh, Christians um, who are uh, now under the throes of persecution. The apostles have recently left there's a lot of questions. How does the church run? And they have uh, new things that pop up in the life of the congregation um, that perhaps they were not taught about. For instance, what do we do when one of us passes away? Questions like this uh, Paul addresses in this next passage. Uh, start reading with me, if you would, in verse 13, and we'll go down through chapter 5, verse 11. This is God's holy and inspired word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Excuse me. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray.
our good and our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, our victorious King. We pray you would be with us this morning. We pray you would pierce us with these words. You would teach us with these words. You would enlighten us to the beautiful hope of your coming. And may, Lord, that hope in all that we do guide us. Lord, shape us this morning in your Son's name. Amen. So you will notice as as we read this text that in this passage, Paul speaks about living and dying with a common expression uh, that we know from ancient texts. It goes back at least as far as, as Homer, and that is that being alive is to be awake, and to be dead is to be asleep. And you can imagine this was a rather felicitous expression for Christians who believe that those who are dead will actually wake up in a resurrection. Jesus uses the idea of sleeping to communicate the idea that death is temporary. But resurrection is not not the source of this expression. Most ancient Greeks and Romans, like the Thessalonians once were, um, did not, in fact, believe that sleep would end. So here's one uh, Latin poet named Catalyst. He lived at the same time as Paul lived in Rome. Um, And he wrote these words, which I thought would be a fitting way to open this morning's sermon, since they capture for us the former mindset of the church that Paul is writing to. So here's Catalyst. Although some of you will be doubtlessly disappointed, I will spare you the Latin. The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief lights set, There is one unending night to be slept through. Or a Greek poet, Theocritus, hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. So to this small band of persecuted believers who were pagans, pagans like this only a few months ago, Paul argues in this passage, in contrast to catalysts, that our lights are not brief, but they are eternal because they draw from the light of Christ, that the night is only temporary, and there is hope for both those who are awake and those who are asleep. And so we look forward to a never-ending day to be lived through with Christ. What Paul offers the Thessalonians here. And what he offers us this morning is a whole new map of reality on which to find our existence, our life, and our death. Now this text this morning, it has a lot of imagery about the end times, which can often be confusing to us. We start to read language like this, and sometimes we just put our guard up right away. It uses a lot of metaphors. And the text is a bit lengthy this morning, but I want us to see that Paul's thought here is not actually all that complex, and he is not trying to confuse. Quite the opposite. He is writing to a situation in which there is much confusion about what to think about death and what to do as we wait for Jesus. And Paul's answer here to this confusion, while profound, is also working in a profoundly straightforward way. Way. He gives them his answer, 
And he, he urges them then to take these words that he gives them and then to encourage one another with these words. The message then he gives them here, which they and we are to use in our tumultuous lives, in our suffering, in our uncertainty, these words which we are to relay over and over to one another in one short form is, is this, that the king will return to you and bring life to you, dead or alive, whether you are awake or asleep. The king will return and bring resurrection. So just for a minute, let's put our eyes on the text together so that you can see here Paul's argument for yourself. Let me walk us through it. So first look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 4. He gives them this hope so that they do not grieve as others without hope. Then verse 14 begins, for, or, or because, and then he gives them in these few verses a description of the Lord's return, and he says this is the reason or the grounds for why you should not grieve without hope. Now look at the end in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here's a message of the Lord's return. Here's what it means for how you should grieve. And now encourage one another with this hope. And then he does it again. Chapter 5. In verses 6 and 8, he says, Because the Lord is coming, don't sleep like others do. These who are unaware that the day of the Lord is coming, but let us be awake and be sober. And in verse 11, again he says, encourage one another. So the reality is, the Lord is coming back. And when he does, we'll bring life with him. He will bestow it on us. And what that means is, first, we should grieve a certain way. And second, when we are awake, we should be sober. So, here are our handy three points for the rest of this morning's sermon. The return of the king and the resurrection he brings. Don't grieve without hope. Be sober. So first, Christ will return with resurrection. What I would like to do now for a moment is just to help us review what Paul says here about Christ's coming. We don't exactly know what the Thessalonians were concerned about, but it was somehow a concern over whether or not the believers who had passed away would be at some disadvantage with respect to the Lord's return. And Paul says, no. Now, we too are prone sometimes, of course, to enter the world of speculation about the end times. It's easy for us to fill up our speculation, as many Christians have, with things like science fiction or, or fantasy, uh, things like you see in books, movies, and these are the same kind of details we're often tempted to fill our own heads with. And it is true that the Bible does not give us every detail. There's a lot to fill in. But we should be reminded that the Bible does not call us to hope in any picture of the future that we have painted for ourselves. And when Paul speaks here, his goal is not to give us a blueprint of the apocalypse on which we can construct a vision of the future. His, his goal here is not to give us any comprehensive picture of the apocalypse himself, nor is his goal to confuse us. His goal is actually quite simple. His goal is to answer a concern 
about what happens to the deceased when Christ returns. And Paul himself does not speculate here. He just tells us, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus told us. It's a word from the Lord. Look at verse 15 for the answer. You don't have a special advantage if you are alive when Christ returns, because you will not precede those who are asleep. They have no disadvantage. Then he describes the basic order of events for us. The Lord will descend, those who are dead will be resurrected, and then all of his people will meet him in the air, and we will live with the Lord forever. But when Paul describes these events, he also fills the description with meaning from the Old Testament and from their own Greco-Roman culture. So you see here that there's a shout of the angel and, and, the, and the trumpet blows. This is imagery from the Old Testament. So this is what happens, the prophet tell us, when, the, when, when God promises, when Yahweh promises to come and to call Israel out from being scattered amongst all the nations... They will be called and summoned with the shout of the archangel and with the shout, the blow of of the trumpet. So there's nothing new here except that Paul says those promises will be fulfilled when Christ returns. And perhaps we can also say that Paul extends this scattering idea even downward into the grave. Paul also speaks here of a cry of command. It's one word in Greek. You could translate it battle command. It's, it's something you would expect of a, a king or, or a general. And you get the sense here that Jesus is a, a warring king whose word transcends all other powers because his controls even life and death itself. Look at verse 17 with me. Once the people are gathered, even from the grave, we will all be caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus. But do notice that even though we meet Christ in the air, it does not mean we will live forever with Him in the air. We have the whole Bible, so we know that God's plan for us is not to live with Him forever in the clouds, floating around like we might see in cartoons of heaven. We will not all be babies with wings and arrows. His plan is to renew the earth, to establish His throne in His new creation. And this is why the word cloud is here. Not to describe our heavenly ascent, but to remind us that we saw Jesus go up on a cloud. And to remind us of Jesus' words. And to remind us of the picture in Daniel 7 of the royal Son of Man coming and going on a cloud. This is the very Jesus who promised the high priest and the Jewish council that they would see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. So this text is not about, the focus here is not about the rapturing up of believers, but on our role in the return of the king. And as the Thessalonians know, and as anybody living in or near any Greek or Roman city knew at the time, when an important official comes to visit you, or a general, or especially a conquering king, you do not wait for him to come through your gates. You go out and you meet him in rejoicing and praise, and you usher him in to your city. This was an important and common practice. And the word for meet here is precisely the word used for such circumstances. 
How much more will this honor be given when the king of kings returns to establish his throne? Like citizens of a city whose leader is far off at a battle and who therefore are ever anticipating and looking for and listening for the trumpet and looking over the horizon for the the king to come back, so also Christians, Paul will go on to say, be awake, be sober, anticipate. On the other hand, when you are home, when the gates and doors are closed and locked, when you expect no one, when you are not concerned with the war going on, when you are under the assumption that there is peace and security, then the man who comes to you suddenly with a shout, with a trumpet, in order to snatch away, that man will not be to you a king, but a thief. Now I know that Christians have often uh, encouraged one another with these words that Christ will come like a thief in the night. But I would invite us this morning to think twice about the next time we use this phrase. Because look at verse 4 here. The good news with which Paul wants to encourage them and with which he wants us to encourage one another is not that Christ will come like a thief, simply put, but that for those who are not in darkness, they will not be surprised by Christ like a thief. Yes, when Christ comes, it will be sudden, but no, you will not feel a violation of your space or belongings. You will not feel shocked and horror. You should not be awoken from a stupor. Rather, Paul says, be sober. And he tells us to encourage one another with the expectation, not for a thief, but for the returning, conquering king. This is the new map, or the story, in which we can locate our life and our death. Both our life and our death occur in this waiting period between Christ's victory and the definitive battle at the cross, and it was definitive, and his complete and final victory and the announcement of it at his return. So encourage one another with these words. First, Paul says in verse 13, in order that you may not grieve like others who have no hope. So then here's our second point. Don't grieve without hope. How do we grieve? How do we grieve? About a hundred years or so after Paul writes this letter, there was a Greek woman whose son Didymus had passed away, and she heard of friends of hers, a couple, who had gone through a similar experience, and to console them, she writes them a letter, and in this letter she says this, I sorrowed and wept over your dear departed one as I wept over Didymus, but really, there is nothing one can do in the face of such circumstances, so please just comfort one another. Apart from faith in Christ, that is pretty much the truest thing that one can say. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing to be done. Be a comfort to one another. In a similar vein, a well-known philosopher living at the same time as Paul, a guy named Seneca, 
he says that it's fine to grieve, but don't grieve for too long because it's unreasonable. We are to master our grief, he says, with reason, because reason teaches there is nothing to be done about death. Or on the other hand, we all heard the name Socrates. He was famous to believe that the soul was immortal, and so that led him to the conclusion that when he died, he did not want anybody to grieve. He did not want anybody to shed a tear over his death. And in these and so many other ways, ancient people and people today, we struggle to deal with grief and death by either being confronted by it with hopeless resignation or somehow denying its reality or significance. Somewhat similar to Socrates, we know of religions where when someone passes on, the belief is that their soul returns in another form or it floats off to be reunited with the one or with the universe. Or you've seen any number of animated movies, right, where the tendency is that the evil characters, when they die, they shrivel into nothing or or they explode in some definitive event so that for the evil characters, death means something like disappearance. Whereas for the good characters, when it comes time to pass on, they gently uh, separate into these sparkling, floating particles that you know, float off into the ether with the promise that somehow, no matter what, they will always be with you. And this is because <clears throat> Ecclesiastes tells us that humanity has eternity in our hearts. So we just cannot help but fight against that incontrovertible fact that death does not discriminate between good and evil. We can only make such things up in our fiction. But it is at the core of our very being to fight against this fact. And so you will find in the world that people are forced into the direction of some kind of hopeless resignation, or some kind of bliss-seeking denial. Something either like Seneca, don't cry because there's nothing you can do about it, or Socrates, don't cry because the body doesn't really matter and death isn't really that big of a deal at all. Or on the one hand, in modern versions, perhaps we or, or someone we know has been tempted into the hopeless resignation by resigning ourselves to death in the way that we can't break out of its sadness. Or, on the other hand, perhaps we have exercised a form of denial by not letting ourselves, by not letting our sadness break out of where we have set it aside, stuffed it down, ignored it. Recall when you have grieved. How have you grieved? For Paul, as it must be for us, all of these options are insufficient forms of grieving. Paul presumes that we do grieve and that we grieve with hope. How do we do that? Not by isolating ourselves and responding to hurt with despondency towards life or others, or starving ourselves of the joy of the gospel, neither by playing the stoic, no, rather 
as we were all reminded in last week's sermon, we add our voice to God's full-throated no to death, which He shouted definitively in the resurrection of Christ. And the denouncement of death in our grieving is not a mere complaint or a hopeless protest against an unanswerable foe. No, Christians are tears. They speak a better word. Because they can at once cry out for vengeance against death and do so with eyes on the horizon in full confidence that justice has in fact been delivered. The way we encourage one another with these words is to remind one another in our grief, not to get lost in our grief, but to find ourselves within this story. Remind one another of the hope that there is somebody who can answer the injustice of death. The one person who is not forced into denial or resignation because he both faced death and conquered it. And by faith in Him, we can too. So this hope also, people of God, is not a merely forward-looking wish or dream. Rather, we pick up the Gospels and we read the history of what has already happened. We read and see, in fact, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so we do not hope just because we are trying to assuage our hurt with happy thoughts. No, we we hurt, we hope, because we know the story. We know that if Christ is king, and we are his people, if Christ is groom, and we are his bride, if Christ is head, and we are his body, then as Paul tells us, Christ is firstfruits, and we are the rest of the harvest in the resurrection. And the sweet story of Christ's resurrection is not a story that has come to its conclusion until Christ brings the rest of his body with him up out of the grave. We have an unshakable hope, people of God, because we know the story. That is what Paul argues in verse 14. Look there. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe that God will bring with Him out of the grave to live with Him forever those who have died in Christ. Every one of us, people of God, will die, and so also every one of us who believes in Christ will live with Him forever. This is the story I need to hear, you need to hear, we all need to hear over and over. Because this story is what will help us to grieve well. Finally, we need also to tell this story to one another so that we remember to be sober. Now, in this passage, we see a lot of this apocalyptic language, but not only here and, and even more so in places like Daniel and in Revelation. We see this language that can seem strange in places it can even seem a bit frightening because it describes this, this surreal world that is quite unlike our world. But that is precisely the point of using such language. Because it gives voice to the conviction that this world is actually not as it seems. 
So, for example, when visiting a cemetery, remind yourself of what is real. Although all that you see is stone and grass and dirt, what is true, in fact, is captured in the very word cemetery. It means place of sleep. And what you know to be true is that Christ will return and our brothers and sisters will be resurrected. And what is happening at the cemetery is that our brothers and sisters are resting until our king brings back resurrection. Or, for example, when we grieve, we feel sad, and sadness is real. But behind that sadness is the reality that death is wrong. It is not to be a natural part of life. And all this helps us understand Paul's point here to be sober, be awake. Sometimes it looks like humanity or our society is progressing further and further towards peace and security, towards the utopia. Other times it seems like our culture is on a path to crash and burn. But when everything seems one way or another we know how to find ourselves within the true story. We know that culture is not sovereign over itself, but in the hands of God. We know that Christ will return and set all things aright. And trusting in that knowledge, people of God, is what Paul means by being sober, being awake. He wants us to live, to eat, to drink, to laugh, to play, to build things, to work, to raise families, and to worship God, all in the anticipation of the return of the king, not with blinders on as the rest of the world wears. He says, you are children of the light. This means that even though we are in a dark world, we are not of darkness. And so don't let the darkness of this world lull you to sleep, is the metaphor that Paul is using now. The call to live in the light is basically then a call to start living in the daytime that Jesus promises to bring. So Paul says, encourage one another with these words so that you do not forget that you belong to the daytime. Remind one another that behind every shadow that confronts us, Behind every shadow of every temptation that attacks us, there must be a light. The light is coming. The light will destroy the darkness. We are of the light. Do not become intoxicated, Paul says, with peace and security here and now. Don't believe the lie that the world, that our lives are not fragile. And don't chase after what the world loves to do in the dark. The world builds its progress. The world pursues its pleasures on the assumption that this is one unending night and there is no dawn on the horizon. Or, if there is, it's because they made it for themselves. They will have achieved progress. And so, they will be surprised when the thief comes and threatens and challenges every sphere of sovereignty they've established for themselves, every attempt to build for themselves peace and security. 
and when the light exposes the sins that they love. When you are considering the return of Christ, are you threatened by the thief who promises to come? Knock down the tower of peace and security you've built for yourself. Or are you anticipating the king? Stay awake. Stay sober. Look to the horizon over which your king will come with him and him only. Is peace and security. People of God, grieving well and staying sober day after day is not an easy task. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. This verse assuages us of any doubt that what Paul has in view here is anything less than all-out war. In this war, which we are a part, which we are caught up in, that is ultimately fought between Jesus and death himself, faith, hope, and love are the equipment it takes for us to survive the night. And the night can and will feel long. So, dress yourself for soberness. Prepare yourself for grief. Return to the fount of grace again And again, in the scripture, in the sacraments, in the prayers, in the preaching of the word, come, fix your eyes on Jesus. Feed your faith and your love for him and one another and feed your ever-increasing hope. A hope in the king's return and for your salvation. Because it is only with this hope, always in view, Stay awake, stay sober, and grieve well. And brothers and sisters, what Paul especially wants us to know from this passage, he says it twice, is that feeding this hope takes one another. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another and build each other up. You, me, all of us, we need to hear this message. We need to be reminded of the story. Your king will return and he will bring resurrection to you awake or asleep. Eyes up. Stay awake. Stay sober. The day is ahead. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly King, we await your return with gladness and joy in our hearts. Lord, the aches in our bodies, the pains in our hearts, the disappointments in life, our failed attempts to establish our own peace, and all of these things, Lord, Lift up our eyes to see the promise and hope that you, who are life itself, will bring that life to us. Give us the strength to feed this hope. Give us one another 
to remind us of the story. Lord, these things we pray in your Son's name. Amen.